2: Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, and this is The Daily Social Distancing Show. Today is Tuesday, May 18th, which means it is the 20th anniversary of the release of Shrek. And everyone was arguing online today about whether Shrek is a classic or actually a terrible movie, but I can't even believe that this is a debate, people. Guys, Shrek is the greatest movie of all time, okay? It's got Eddie Murphy as Donkey, I mean, what's the best animal? A donkey. What's the best Eddie Murphy? Eddie Murphy. Put them together and you've got Shrek. Not to mention the story. It's about a guy who thinks he's falling for a beautiful princess, but she actually turns out to be an ogre, which is a good lesson for kids because it's never too early for them to learn about catfishing. Anyway, coming up on tonight's show, a new Giuliani just dropped. Roy Wood Jr. is back with another CP time, and we'll tell you why the waiter hasn't shown up with the menus yet. So, let's do this, people. Welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is The Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears Edition. Let's kick things off with the police. The answer to the question, whatever happened to that bully from high school? Ever since the Black Lives Matter movement began, there has been a debate over the best way to stop police abuse. Should the police be reformed, defunded, abolished? And police have consistently replied, nah, let's do none of that. But now, even the most stubborn police organizations are giving at least a little ground.
3: Police unions across the country endorsing a potential shift in the way that officers defend each other. The union's committee-approved plan calls on more than 350,000 members of law enforcement to intervene when they see another union member doing something wrong, a rejection of the so-called
2: code of silence among police officers. Interesting. So you're telling police officers that starting now, if they see someone committing a crime, they'll have to stop it? I guess we can try it. For real though, people, it's so disconcerting that police even had to be told this. It's like the employees must wash hands signs in restaurant bathrooms. What were you doing before this rule? Now, there's always the potential that this could be a slippery slope. Because knowing cops, once they start policing each other, well, they're gonna also start over-policing each other. And pretty soon, the NYPD could just be 10,000 cops planting crack pipes in each other's squad cars but I still think that this is the right move because a code of silence is pretty much always a bad thing. I mean, the only acceptable code of silence is the one where you hear your grandmother casually fart and you just pretend it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about it, it's actually ironic that police even have a code of silence because half of their job is convincing you to snitch. Tell us who sold you the drugs, Brad. It's the right thing to do. Okay, but first you tell me which officer beat me up while I was handcuffed. I'm not telling you nothing. I ain't no snitch. Moving on to news from the world of politics. We all know Rudy Giuliani, right? Former advisor to President Trump and the only lawyer loyal enough to go to jail with his clients. But did you know that Giuliani once spawned offspring? Yeah, it's true. And now one of them is following in his footsteps.
1: We have new developments in the New York governor's race just into the live desk this morning. Andrew Giuliani, the son, a former New York City mayor and former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani, throwing his name in the hat this morning.
0: Giuliani's only political experience is his former role as President Trump's sports liaison, where he helped to organize White House visits for sports teams.
2: I worked in the Trump administration for four years, and I'm proud of many of the policies that we were able to accomplish in there. But I think I'm gonna be pushing policies that's gonna be pro-economic development, it's gonna be record-setting crime reduction, which I think the Giuliani name is certainly associated with, and we have that playbook ready to go. The Giuliani name is associated with crime reduction? I mean, I guess if one person is personally doing all the crimes, that does reduce the number of criminals. But yeah, Rudolph Giuliani's son is now running for governor off of his dad's name. And it's not a bad move. I mean, considering how much Americans love political dynasties. Bush, Clinton, Cheney, Kennedy, Cuomo. It's almost like America fought the revolution to say, we don't want a king. We want like six to eight kings and they can rotate. What surprises me, is that any politician's kid would want to go into politics. Yo, man, personally, I would steer clear of any job that turned my dad into a melting piece of licorice. I don't want none of that action. But of course, Andrew Giuliani isn't just running as the son of America's only living gargoyle. He's also running off of his extensive experience as President Trump's sports liaison. And I know some people think sports liaison sounds like a bullshit job, like influencer or consultant or Astronaut. (laughs) But personally, I think he crushed it as the sports liaison. I mean, who do you think helped Trump get those championship teams all of those cheeseburgers, huh? You think it's easy explaining to Uber Eats that ordering 500 burgers was not a mistake? Yo, New York needs that executive experience so then we could get all of those burgers. And finally, let's talk about pets. They're the reason you occasionally talk like this. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Adopting a pet was one of the most popular things to do during the coronavirus lockdowns. They provided companionship, comfort, and gave you something to post pics of aside from your ugly ass lasagnas. But now that the country is reopening, some of those pets are learning about Petco's return policy firsthand animal
1: shelters across the country are starting to fill up with pets that are being returned after a pandemic adoption boom stay-at-home orders from last year prompted a lot of people to take on a dog or a cat as a companion during those difficult months but now shelters say a lot of those furry friends are being returned shelters say the return pets have no behavioral problems instead owners are heading back to work or travel and just didn't feel that they fully understood the gravity of pet adoptions
2: Okay, this is not cool, man. Like, I understand some people's pets don't live up to their expectations, you know? I mean, I bought a turtle once and it barely did any karate, but pets don't deserve to be treated like this. They're members of the family. You don't just return a member of your family. No, you put them in an affordable group home and visit them just enough times to stay in their will. No, but seriously, people, pets are a real commitment. And I think a lot of people don't understand that going in. Social media doesn't help, by the way. You know, based on people's posts, you think owning a pet was a stress-free cuddlepalooza. You know, nobody is on Instagram walking around like, hey, fam, out on another 3 a.m. walk to watch my little fur baby's butthole open up. Hope he poops out the thumb drive with all my work files on it. Ha-ha, <laughs> hashtag pet life. But whatever the causes are, the pets are facing the consequences. And the good news is you can help. The Daily Show has just launched our Daily Show Dogs collection. It's a new charitable line of gear for your dogs. See, cool stuff like this, yeah? And 100% of Viacom CBS proceeds will be donated to Best Friends Animal Society, which works to save the lives of cats and dogs all across America and give them a second chance at a happy home. So just scan the QR code or go to the link below and you can support Best Friends and deck out your dog all at the same time. But let's move on now to our main story. When restaurants shut down during the pandemic, many of the people who worked there lost their jobs, which sadly was probably unavoidable. I mean, think about it. You can't pay a bunch of people if they're not doing any work. I mean, this is a business, it's not Congress. But what was less expected is that now that these places are reopening, many of the workers aren't coming back.
1: This morning, restaurants across the country are struggling to keep up with demand. Business is starting to boom, but hiring is not. Hotels and restaurants say there aren't enough people applying for jobs. Restaurants are getting busier, and we're finding it really harder to find staff. There is definitely a glut of jobs and a lack of hands to fill positions. In January, 7% of restaurant operators named recruitment and retention as their top challenge. By April, that number was 57%.
0: Some restaurants are even turning to robots to flip burgers and make french fries. One restaurant owner put jobs on the menu, literally, advertising for staff
2: below the daily special. A Chicken Express in Texas sported signs on their drive through windows warning customers to be patient with them, given that, quote, no one wants to work anymore. God damn, that's an angry sign. Like, most signs are trying to inform you. That sign is just trying to drag you into some drama. I'm like, hey man, I don't wanna get political. I just wanna buy six nuggets to eat in traffic. But that's right. Restaurants like Chicken Express are finding out that their workers wanna be there as much as the chickens do. And instead of doing right by their workers, they're now turning to robots to do the job, which I actually think is a brilliant idea. Yeah, think about it. Instead of hiring people in these jobs, just get robots to do it. And then you also get robots to raise the chickens and deliver the food. And then and then you can get robots to market these companies and create the ads we see on TV, right? Oh, you don't even need people for those ads, right? You, you can use robots for that too. And, the, and then like Wall Street can become robots and police can be robots. Teachers, doctors, lawyers, all robots. And then because no human has a job, they can't afford to buy anything. So we just make robot consumers. And then the cycle is complete and humans are no longer necessary. Terminate, terminate, terminate. Terminate, terminate, terminate. So why is it so hard for restaurants to find workers? Well, to some people who have never worked in one, the answer is obvious.
1: Business groups and Republicans say the enhanced unemployment benefits are encouraging out-of-work Americans to stay home and leading to a labor shortage.
0: The unemployment benefits are too generous. People don't want to go back to work. We've we've sent them so much money.
3: Texas, Indiana, and Oklahoma are joining 17 other GOP-led states in ending the pandemic relief, the $300 weekly federal boost to unemployment benefits. Republican governors claim that these benefits are keeping Americans from going back to work.
0: Human nature kicks in. Uh, Do I want to get the same amount of money by going to work every day and working hard? Do I want to get that amount of money by sitting at home? Why work if you can get that kind of money and stay home and Netflix?
2: All these kids are watching Netflix and then having sex. Get a job. And look, man, I get where these pundits are coming from. If the average person could have their jobs, whew, they would be crazy not to take them. I mean, who wouldn't want to spend 10 minutes a day sitting in a chair complaining about how other people don't wanna work? I mean, that's a great gig. And you know what? These Republicans might be right about one thing. Generous unemployment benefits really might be one reason people aren't rushing back to their old jobs. But that doesn't mean they're just sitting around Netflixing. First of all, it's been over a year. They've already finished Netflix. And I mean, sure, they could subscribe to Paramount+, Plus, which has an extensive library of classic films and hit shows. I think they're gonna subscribe. But the point is, those unemployment checks are not subsidizing laziness. They're giving workers the rare opportunity to look for a job that's more than just a way to survive to their next paycheck.
0: The pandemic gave
2: restaurant workers a chance to reinvent themselves, choosing to leave for what they believe are better situations. Following pandemic shutdowns when workers have been forced into overdrive, coronavirus exposing industry flaws. Restaurant workers are considered essential workers, but we're not treated like essential workers. There's definitely issues with wages. I think there's issues with childcare. I think there's issues with um, benefits, health insurance. Where you're having to work like
1: 50 plus hours a week, and it's just it's still not enough to pay your bills and to be able to take care of your family. Many restaurant workers left the industry over the past year, taking jobs in sectors such as the construction business with higher pay and better hours. People move to things like warehouse jobs, which offer more regular schedules, more pay and health care. Medical marijuana, it's an industry that's growing and it's attracting workers from a particular sector of the economy.
2: I've seen a lot of uh, cooks, cocktail servers, a lot of people from the restaurant industry coming here
0: and I just, I think it's a quality of life issue. Wouldn't
2: rather work in the weed industry It's the most chill job in the world. Customers are always relaxed, nobody's in a hurry. The only bad thing about the job is the drug test. You know, that's where they give you a bag of edibles, and you gotta eat it all right there. (sighs) I failed that, like, three times. But, people, it makes complete sense that restaurant workers are looking for better jobs, right? Because these are tough jobs. They're on their feet all day. They take care of everyone. They pretend not to hear when you guys are breaking up at the table. And after all of that, they have to rely on tips. I mean, you know a job isn't paying enough when every meal ends with a mini GoFundMe. And aside from giving workers the opportunity to look for jobs that they can actually live on, these unemployment benefits are also giving them leverage to use against their former employers. And it seems like it might actually be working.
4: Restaurant and fast food chains are all ramping up hiring and beefing up employee benefits to attract workers. Starbucks, Olive Garden, announcing new benefits or increased pay in just the last few months.
0: McDonald's
1: increasing its minimum wage. Company-owned restaurants will now pay workers between $11 and $17 an hour, depending on location. McDonald's hoping to attract 10,000 new employees.
2: Whataburger is adding 50,000 workers, adding emergency pay and increasing a 401k matching.
1: Taco Bell is giving its store managers paid family leave. Chipotle is increasing. Increasing its wages to an
3: average of $15 per hour. Other Chipotle benefits include mental health care,
2: 401k, and debt free college. Restaurants trying to bring workers back, sometimes offering cash incentives. Applebee's taking a rather different approach. You fill out an application to Applebee's and you get a free appetizer. Damn, the Applebee's is confident in their onion rings. Yeah, they're out there like, forget the 401k, guys have them eat these bad boys. Yeah. Get ready to meet your new coworkers everybody. <laughs> equal rights, more like equal spice. But the point is, many restaurants are getting workers back by raising wages and offering benefits. So I guess it turns out that when they were saying nobody wants to work, what they actually meant was nobody wants to work for the starvation wages that we were willing to pay them. And apparently they were able to afford this the whole time. It just took some pressure from the workers to force their hand. And look, I know that some restaurants can only afford to pay their workers so much, but I honestly believe that that's your responsibility as a business owner to figure it out. Like if you need more revenue, I don't know, try adding a side of guac to the menu. That's one thing I've learned in America, is you can charge whatever you want and customers will pay for it if it's guac. Doesn't even matter if it makes sense for your restaurant. Just add guac. Seafood place, add a side of guac. Indian place, add a side of guac. Guac place, I mean, you're already balling. You don't need advice from me, player. (laughs) The point is, if your business can only get by on the backs of workers who can't, then that's not a sustainable business because everyone deserves a job that lets them afford the necessities of life, housing, healthcare, and at least one Netflix. All right, after the break, Roy Wood Jr. is back for more CP time. You don't want to miss it.
4: MTV's official challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And
3: this season takes it to a whole new level.
2: Earlier, we were talking about how workers are flexing their bargaining power as the pandemic comes to an end. And while we're on the subject, let's turn to Roy Wood Jr. to learn about forgotten black leaders of the labor movement in another episode of CP Time.
0: Mm. Ah, hello. Welcome to CP Time, the only show that's for the culture Today, we'll be talking about black leaders of the labor movement. Because usually when you think of labor unions, you don't think about black folk. You think about those big, giant inflatable rats that are always on strike. Get back to work, giant rats. You have got a job to do, I think. But actually, American history is full of black leaders who led their fellow workers in the cause of justice. Leaders like A. Philip Randolph, a leader of the Porter's union and a man with the most disappointed facial expression of all time. That's a face that says, it's not your fault for failing math class, it's my fault for thinking that you were smart. Randolph began his career organizing a union for elevator operators in New York. Thanks to Randolph's leadership, those elevator operators successfully unionized and it didn't hurt that elevator operators can blackmail their employers too hey boss, how about you get me some health insurance and I won't tell anybody about your penthouse mistress. Our next labor hero is Dorothy Bolden. Dorothy organized the National Domestic Workers Union of America in 1968. She gave a collective voice to thousands of maids who no longer would be abused by long hours and unfair pay. And it's good that the maids got paid more. Because do you remember how dirty white people were in 1968? Hippies were having orgies in the mud and coming back in the house without wiping their damn feet. <sighs> Our next activist, Hattie Canty, one of the greatest strike leaders in United States history and a leading figure in Las Vegas's Culinary Workers Union. That's right. Even cooks needed a union, which surprised me. Because if there's one person you shouldn't mess with, It's the person that's in charge of what you eat underpaying your cook isn't worth it if he's going to be serving you chicken a la pubes after being elected to the union's executive board in 1984 canty led a 75-day walkout to improve casino workers health insurance personally i could have used some of that health insurance on my last trip to vegas i had a procedure where they removed all my benjamins I'm sorry, I lost the house baby. I'm so sorry. Our last labor pioneer is Kurt Flood, a man whose defiance changed baseball and helped black athletes take ownership of their own careers. In 1969, Flood was told that he was being traded to the Philadelphia Phillies, which at the time was notorious for its racist and hostile fans. Not anything like the inclusive and tolerant Phillies fans of today. Anyway, Flood refused to be traded and he ended up suing Major League Baseball, claiming that the league's control over a player's rights amounted to involuntary servitude. I guess it's no surprise that it took a black person to tell white players, fellas, trust me, getting bought and sold like this is not gonna end well. Thanks to Flood's efforts, players now of all races have freedoms that they might not have had otherwise. From the freedom to enter free agency, to the freedom to speak their minds, to the freedom to dress like they're in a white reboot of Harlem Knights. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I'm Roy Wood Jr. This has been CP Time. And remember, before the culture, Reminds me, I need to renegotiate my contract for this show. My mustache needs a new hairdresser. Mm -hmm. Mm, Still hot.
2: Thank you so much for that, Roy. All right, when we come back, Salima Karoma will be joining us on the show to talk about the Wall Street you might not have heard about. So don't go away. (laughs) My guest tonight is a producer and director by the name of Salima Karoma. She's here to talk about her new documentary that explores the history of the Tulsa race massacre. Salima Karoma, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show.
1: Thank you so much, Trevor, for having me on.
2: Uh, It's an actual pleasure having you on because you are one of the most exciting documentary filmmakers working today, and your new project is bound to get people talking. Dreamland, The Burning of Black Wall Street. I mean, this is a story that shockingly, very few people in America and around the world actually know about. And when you look at it, it seems like one of the most consequential stories in and around black people building black wealth and then having everything taken away from them merely because of the color of their skin. The question I would have first is why the title Dreamland when it's about a massacre that was so painful in America? Ooh.
1: What a great question, right? When we tell stories about Black people in America, uh, a lot of times the stories are, um, they are dire, they are sad, they are of trauma and poverty and all the bad things that have happened to us in this country. Um, And that is true. You know, this story about Tulsa, this massacre is a, a story about something bad that happened to Black people here in America, but it's also a story about this place that was a dream, that felt like a dreamland, right? And like for me, um, like when I watched, I know this is gonna sound so cliche, but when I watched Black Panther, right? And you see Wakanda, right? And you, you can make jokes about it, but it was the first time I'd seen black people on screen looks and feel so grand.
2: And right, feel like- right, right, right
1: we could have been that, that's what we could be. But it's like, no, dreamland, we were that. We, we have been that in America before. So I, I wanna tell the story of the dreamland that was here in the heartland of America.
2: What I love about that title is is exactly what you just said. And and I think it's a story that doesn't get told enough. You know, w- one of one of the narratives that often gets spun in America about black people is, oh, black people don't wanna work hard. Black people want handouts. Black people, just pull yourselves up. You can get over it. But what this story talks to is a world where black people did exactly that. They overcame all the odds. They built an entire place that was theirs. They made it thrive. And I mean, the title Black Wall Street told it all. Tell me a little bit about that place, the place that people don't often talk about and what made it so special.
1: It's funny because whenever some, uh, when I was pitching this story, a lot of people said Black Wall Street. So like there was a trading floor. There was like a, it was like, <laughs> asset, right? Like, no, it's not Black Wall Street. It's, it's you know, it is a, a metaphor for the financial prosperity that this place called Greenwood, an outskirt of Tulsa. Um, mm-hmm. It is a metaphor for, for that. Uh, and this place, Greenwood, the reason it existed is because we're talking about the 1920s, right? This is a booming time in American history. Um, this is, there's an oil boom in Oklahoma, in Tulsa. And what happens is at the same time, black people are not allowed to go into white patrons in white businesses. Right, right. Uh, right? Um, and so black people at this time in Greenwood, in Tulsa, they had to create their own. So something that is, you know, almost this, uh, you know, you're segregated from going to these places, but then you also have to create your own. They're almost forced to create their own thing, forced to create this utopia. A lot of people, uh, when they hear about Tulsa, it, the, the massacre, it happened 100 years ago, and they say, okay, this thing happened 100 years ago, it was an event, and, it, and then it ended, and now it's all done. Uh, but what what I would love people to understand is that a hundred years of the you know that hundred years it's still happening. The massacre is still happening uh, uh, through gentrification, through urban uh, renewal, what they call urban removal, meaning taking people out of their homes and right. you know building schools or building um uh, universities or you know really taking people out of their homes. Um, so this is not a story of 1921; it's a story of 1921 to 2021.
2: What I, what I appreciate about the telling of this story is how it touches on the idea of the compound effects of anything. You know, uh, oftentimes people will talk about, you know, injustice or, or, or massacres or, 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 or any, anything that was done to a group of people. And they'll be like, that was so long ago, get over it, blah, blah, blah. But they say it as if they don't understand the compound interest of trauma and pain when they do understand the compound interest of actual money. That's what you touch on in this documentary is how you take from somebody yesterday, it'll it'll, it'll affect them not just that day, but today and tomorrow and for many tomorrows because that wealth is generational.
1: Absolutely, it's generational wealth. I was talking about this oil boom that happened in the 1920s. Um, Like people are still eating off that oil. Families are still eating off that oil. And so um, the fact that this black community was wiped out. All this wealth, all this stuff that was lost. I'm not even, it's, you know, it's not even just wealth, it's family photos, it's right. uh, history, right. it's knowing of oneself, right? It's completely just um, obliterated. Um, and so the trauma still persists today. And you know, you can make as many, you can put as many memorials out, you know, do commemorations, but to be real, going down there, people want cold hard reparations you know like they they I mean money is what's going to help there are there are still three survivors who are in um Tulsa uh um 106 years old 107 wow. years old,
2: who are wow. still alive
1: um who you know never saw anything never saw wow. they barely saw sorry Right? Um, and so I think uh, it's time for us to not just be telling these stories, but actually doing something that's tangible uh, for these people and for these communities.
2: Uh, what's, really, what's really amazing about the story is, as you said earlier, you, you were pitching it to people and you, you went around trying to find somebody to help you make the project. Um, your teammates now are none other than LeBron James and Mav Carter, a powerhouse team. Um, why did you choose them and why did you think, you know what, these are the perfect people to make this story with?
0: Trevor,
1: you think I chose them? You think I chose... Nobody... You
2: did choose them. You pitched to them, so you chose them.
1: Trevor, nobody wanted... uh, um, I pitched this many years ago. It wasn't the first time that I pitched this story. And years ago, no one wanted to do it because it felt too scary. I think that's why I... I think it felt too scary. It didn't feel real. So I gave up on it for a few years. And then, um, I don't know what last year I said, you know what, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to do this. I talked to all the people I needed to talk to. And I literally, I think it sent it out to Spring Hill and maybe in a matter of days, they came back and were like, let's do this. We want to do this. So like, that's, that's the story. I don't know how it happened, it, you know, uh, but I'm happy that they wanted to do it. Like they were the first ones who wanted to do it. So that's dope. Thank you, LeBron. Thank you, Maverick.
2: Wow. LeBron with another assist. He never stops. Um, I really hope people watch the story and uh, I hope you make many, many more documentaries. Congratulations on your journey. Thank you for taking the time.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Don't forget people, Dreamland, The Burning of Black Wall Street will premiere May 31st on CNN. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back after this.
3: old-school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000.
4: And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast.
3: Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast
2: on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's our show for tonight. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, get your vaccine, and remember... Don't vote for someone just because you recognize their last name. Vote for them because they're the same ethnicity as you. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and stream full episodes anytime on Paramount+.
4: MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here.
3: Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This has been a Comedy Central podcast.